Welcome to Benel Street Art Center's podcast, Inspiration and Adaptation. This weekly conversation with Alaska artists explores how artists are adapting in challenging times. I'm Asia Freeman, Artistic Director of Benel Street Art Center and a long-term visitor to this land called Tuget by the Denaina and Kajimak by the Supiak. Thank you for your past and present stewardship of the waters, the plants, and the animals of this place. Thank you for letting me walk on your land. Today's conversation features contemporary artists, Cheryl Marie Riley and Nina Elder. We'll be talking about art in the Anthropocene. Our conversations recorded, shared on Benell's website and podcast, and on Facebook Live. Your questions are welcome. Born in New Zealand, Cheryl Marie Riley lives in the small mining town of Esther. The gravity of the global situation prompted her to transform her creative practice as a self-taught photographer and healthcare professional into an artist, arts-based advocacy for human and environmental well-being. Her work draws upon an expanded field of sculpture, performance, installation, and media technology. Riley has received three Rasmussen Individual Artist Awards, Helene Willitzer Foundation, and Santa Fe Institute Fellowships and serves on the Alaska State Arts Council for the Visual Arts Committee and with the Elaine Tremaine Foundation Artists Thrive platform. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. And welcome artist and researcher Nina Elder, who creates projects that reveal humanity's dependence on and interruption of the natural world. With a focus on changing cultures and ecologies, Nina advocates for collaboration, fostering relationships between institutions, artists, scientists, and diverse communities. She lectures on a visiting, as a visiting artist scholar at universities, develops publicly engaged programs, and consults with organizations that seek to grow through interdisciplinary programming. Nina's work is widely exhibited and has been featured in Art in America, Vice Magazine, and on PBS. She's based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Welcome, Nina. Thank you. So as the polar ice cap shrinks and the planet warms up, Alaska's place seems to have shifted from the fringe to the center of global conversations. Against a backdrop of an increasingly endangered planet, the concept of the Anthropocene gains new relevance as artists stare at a grid where scientists, politicians, environmentalists, and other specialists do not. Working in a variety of modes ranging from critique to practical demonstrations and shading into other current tendencies like social practice, relational aesthetics, environmental activism, and systems theory, artists point the way to a more ecologically sustainable future. But let's begin by framing this conversation with a collaborative definition. How would you define Anthropocene? And I'm going to invite you to start us out, Nina. Yeah, um, it's something I think a lot about. Um, I think from the pending geologic term, um, it would just be this idea that humans have made an irreversible impact on this actual planet. So our geologic um, reality has been transformed by human actions. Um, and, you know, that's true. We have layers of plastic and um, uh, radionuclides from uh, nuclear activities. And I've been reading a lot about chicken bones that like 
you know, in a million years, they'll look back at this time and we just have consumed so many chickens that there'll be just these mass amounts of chicken bones on the planet. So, um, you know, it's just, it's that definition, but something I've really been thinking about and it's especially poignant right now is that, um, I've thought a lot, maybe we should be calling it the pyro scene because to me, what really kicked it off was when we started extracting things from the earth that we would burn and manipulate into other forms and then how the earth is responding, which is how other geologic eras have been um, defined. It's not by what causes them, it's how the earth responds and how the earth is responding as, as we can see right now, especially is through fire. So I've been really curious about like, how do we decenter the human in it and look more at the earth? So I'm, I'm kind of interested in this idea of um, the pyro scene, but that's a totally different topic that I could go off on. So. <laughs> Well, still, um, you know, anything else that you would add that defines what art in the Anthropocene means to you? Mm. What art in the Anthropocene? Um, for me, it's um, been really important to really reveal how humans have changed the planet. And for many years, and when I, when I show my slides later, I'll show this a little bit more, but... Um, really depicting these kind of easy, easy to ignore and easy to camouflage and often erased places on the planet that have allowed humans to um, completely exploit this planet and change, change the way it functions. Um, so for a long time, my art was really um, about bearing witness and telling hard truths. And I've recently taken a turn into a much more poetic space because I think we've come over the hump and we're now in a space of much more grief and loss and reckoning with the reality rather than trying to learn what we've done. It's more about learning how to uh, be within change. So I think art is really powerful because it has space for really complex and conflicting um, emotions. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. Thank you, Nina. And one more question about where you're at. So, but where are you at? Obviously you're not in Albuquerque right now. Well, I split my time between Alaska and New Mexico, which is how I get to be part of this incredible community. Um, and I'm in McCarthy where I've been spending summers for several years now. Um, the Kennecott River is flowing right behind me. Um, the airstrip's about a mile and a half to my north. So if I get buzzed by an airplane, it'll probably short out everybody's audio for a little while because it's really loud, but otherwise it's very quiet here. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us from That's great. Yeah. From the wild. <laughs> yes. So Cheryl, I'm shifting back to you. Um, give us, if you would, your, your definition of the Anthropocene and how um, art can um, Help us understand it. Well, um, first I'd like to say that I'm uh, joining from Fairbanks, the um, traditional homeland of the Diné and Denina people of the Lower Tanana Valley. Um, and with regard to the Anthropocene, oddly enough, it's not a term I use. Um, it, it has a particular niche that's um, perhaps grounded more in academia. So in my own writings and in my own talkings about the work that I do, I, I don't uh, refer to it that often. Um, but clearly my work has a connection um, to that theme. 
I would define um, the Anthropocene pretty much the way Nina does, in, in, but that we're witnessing um, an unfolding of a, a human-caused mass um, catastrophic event. And if I refer to it in any kinds of terms, it's normally as um, a mass extinction event. Um, the word Anthropocene to me um, just doesn't have enough of a visual element in it. And I like to use words that, um, you know, like nuclear winter, um, you know, that sort of communicate this word picture to people's minds and then, you know, maybe make their flesh crawl or whatever. Um, and so, um, yeah, so that's pretty much, um, you know, uh, the concern. Mm -hmm. And it's... Um, it, it's easily identified. I think we know what the problem is. Um, the, the challenge I'm finding right now for me is to then address and then what. Um, you know, there's this, this whole framework of being an artist and, and really uh, whether or not you can be a change maker. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, I do know that for me, it's important that my work have meaning. Um, but I don't always expect that it will have an effect. Um, so I'm looking at this whole question of the Anthropocene and saying, so, okay, so we know that this is going on. What are we going to do now? And initially, um, or, or recently, right up in, until COVID, really, I was looking at more um, exposing the problem. And now it's more framing it in terms of adaptation. You've written, it's my belief humankind is inseparable from the land. And that recognition, that reconnection is the only viable course of action if we are to survive the negative impacts we have created as the architects of our own demise. Yeah. Um, you know, through a, a, a series of growth and development, I think I've come to the conclusion that um, really the, the underlying cause um, of the problem we find ourselves in right now is this deep uh, disconnect um, from the natural world. And I, I frame it in terms of the landscape, but really it's, 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 um, it's the natural world. And that um, we do in fact have a deep emotional connection and it's somewhat of a relic. And we see this manifest in ways, um, for example, you know, we put our children to sleep at night with stuffed animals um, as a way to comfort them. Um, anyway, I think, you know, having identified for myself that, that that's the root cause of it, now I'm sort of grappling with and, and ways to facilitate reconnection. And uh, again, I think that COVID has revealed, you know, one of the positive um, effects of it is it, it has sort of revealed some pathways. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in talking to you more about that and seeing some images. Before we shift into that, I wanted to ask um, you, Nina, how COVID has impacted your practice. In some ways, massively, and in some ways, um, 
not so much. Um, I'm a pretty isolated person and I spend a great amount of time by myself. Um, but when I'm not doing that, I have a pretty rigorous travel schedule of lecturing and speaking and working with students and doing community projects. Um, and so, you know, everything's just canceled and on hold. Um, but that allowed me to spend four months in this tiny town uh, in Alaska, which was a really fantastic um, opportunity. And I've really been able to engage on a more activist level here this summer because I haven't been so um, busy. And I've been able to actually, you know, I haven't used fossil fuels since I got here. I've just been going where my bike and my legs can take me, which is great. Um, and, but I think, I guess I've had just a little bit of a, of a, a doomsday perspective about humanity and, um, and have thought sort of cataclysmic thoughts. And I think what's really interesting that's happening right now is seeing the interconnectedness and seeing how people are becoming aware of that um, in fits and starts, you know, it's not um, the length of, of COVID and how long people are grappling with it. I think it's just the beginning of a huge learning cycle. And I wanted to go off what Cheryl was just saying a moment ago that, um, you know, thinking about the environment, I think a lot about ecology and the word ecology itself comes from the Greek word for hearth. It's like, the ecos is where everything comes together. It's where life is sustained and it's where we go for nourishment and shelter and spirituality and family and procreation. And so I think something like COVID is really showing us our personal ecologies, what we're connected to, what our impacts are and what we need. And I think that's actually really beautiful. And it's been really, um, I think there are, in a strange roundabout way, there's going to be a lot of positive outcome from that because we've, as Cheryl was saying, we've been able to cultivate lives where we don't have to be aware of our interconnectedness. So, um, I don't know. I've been writing a lot. I've been working in smaller groups and it's just a fascinating thing to see. Mm -hmm. You, you recently wrote, um, you have a wonderful, you know, social media presence. I always enjoy your newsletters. And, and, and you recently wrote, living remotely and close to nature does not keep hardships at a distance. Instead, I'm able to observe and explore how this constellation of oppression came to be. What's your time in Alaska, which you described as the far north end of your migration? What is that teaching you? And can I invite you through answering that question to also segue into sharing some images with us anytime that you'd like. I know you have a 12 o'clock meeting, so we'll go to your presentation yeah. and then share. Yeah, and I, I'm planning on talking quite a bit about Alaska. So if we can okay. do screen share. Yeah, absolutely. See. Share screen. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing that I can do this all off of solar panels and, um, Love it. It's way out here. It's incredible. All right. Can you all see my screen? Yes. Um, I'm just going to go down to that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> give me just a second to pull up my notes. <clears throat> so I just wanted to um, really begin by saying I'm just, it's so awesome to be invited and to be included in an Alaskan dialogue. And I think it's such an important time to consider 
stability and vulnerability and strength. Um, and that's really what the Anthropocene's about. So um, I spend a lot of time here. I'm in the Wrangell Mountains in Alaska. Um, my permanent home those on the Puebloan lands that are currently called Albuquerque. And I'm just really thankful to those who came before me. And why won't this let me go forward? There we go. <clears throat> this is a time of great insecurity and change. It brings an air of discomfort and unpredictability and vulnerability. Even so, an invitation to talk about the Anthropocene merited an easy yes for me. Um, Thinking about change makes people feel shaky, wobbly, and tottering. My entire art practice has been dedicated to being in change, witnessing it, and creating space to be productive within it. I understand that as part of any ecology, everything is always in a state of change. Stability and permanence are fantasies. The future is constantly slipping into the past. We are spinning and hurtling through space on a ball of stardust. Seas slosh in their tides, the moon fluctuates, waters evaporate, and this glacier grumbles. Evolution is happening as redwood trees in California are surrounded by flames and as polar bears lose their arctic habitats. Inside of you, whole ecosystems of bacteria and microbes are living out millions of lifetimes. The basis of life is change, and that's how I approach the Anthropocene. This time, defined by change, is an opportunity, not necessarily something to fear. I want to understand how I can relate to things even as they change, especially because they change. So that's why I keep coming up here to McCarthy, Alaska, because of its glaciers and its mines and my ability to witness their changes alongside my own changes. For those of you who've never been to McCarthy, the town is like right next to this big old glacier that's on your screen right now. Glaciers are often described as fragile. They are, and they are not. Glaciers carve and shape the landscape around them. They gouge and rip and rumble like bulldozers. Glaciers are at once vul vulnerable and immensely strong. And I just got dive bombed by a raven. Um, <laughs> I desire to not be rigid and inflexible, but to allow myself to change. I want to be responsive to what surrounds me, even if it forces me to take on new forms. I want to move and be moved. The surface of a glacier is covered with cracks and ripples, stretch marks and slumps because it has changed to fit its surroundings. If there is any one reason I'm an artist, it is because I care deeply for this tumbling, spinning ball of stardust and how life on it unfolds. I have a relationship with this glacier. I've watched it morph and primarily shrink over the years. As it transforms, I want to observe what change looks like, sounds like, feels like. This glacier surprises me and sombers me and sometimes fills me with glee. This caring has allowed me to explore what it means to care for something very, very, very different than myself. This thing is a thousand years old and half a mile thick. It roars and burps. Parts of it are dangerous and always distant. Parts of it are familiar and fun. I feel empathy for this much larger than human entity. Caring for glaciers has taught me about loving something, even as it disappears. It has given me a practical understanding of deep time and distance and the Anthropocene. More than anything, this Alaskan landscape offers up metaphors that I return to repeatedly. Oops. 
For many years, I have made work about geologic displacements, piles of rocks, strip mines, bomb craters, clear-cut forests, and pit mines. I have wanted to show the impacts that consumerism has made in the landscape. I want to entice people to look at the evidence of industry that is so easy to camouflage and forget. The way that the majority of humans exist is only made possible through minds like these. Massive, rumbling, highly engineered scenes of extraction. The camera that shot this video right now, the internet that is streaming this into your home, the device on which you watch this, the chair you are sitting on, the clothes you are wearing, the contact lenses on your eyeballs, the medicines you might have taken this morning, the mug which held your coffee. None of this would be possible without extractive industry. We've created systems that stabilize dominant society and in the process have destabilized the earth. Vast portions of the planet have been sacrificed. I uphold these sites as monuments to what has been destroyed and obfuscated in that process. Ecological systems, indigenous cultures, workers' rights, and the interconnectedness of life. These holes in the ground will not go away, but the power that created them can and will be challenged. This is a drawing that I made last fall of a quarry in, Indi in Indiana. The stone that came from this quarry became the US Pentagon. This delicate and crumbling place gives me hope when I think about the seeming dominance of the US military. Very powerful things can erode. I've thought deeply about monuments, something that is the center of a much needed public dialogue and action right now. I've wondered if change is the only constant, why do we try to make something permanent by carving it in stone? Because of my relationship to geology and to glaciers and to mines, I see stone as something that has been formed and something that will keep transforming. I was able to build a monument for the city of Indianapolis over the last several years. In working with the local community and engaging the geology of the area, I worked to place a large fractured block of limestone at the new Indianapolis Justice Center. It is a monument to the changing shape of power. It will crumble. This block will not be maintained and it will eventually return to the soil. This decision was made early this year, before I knew that Ahmed Arbery had been killed by white vigilantes in Brunswick, Georgia, before George Floyd was killed by the Minneapolis police, before police killed Breonna Taylor as she slept in her bed. As the force and funding of police come into public questioning, I'm honored and invigorated to create something that will remind law enforcement, judges, and lawyers that power is relational, that it shifts, and it will always take on new forms. Okay, I'm a little bit of an academic, so I'm showing a flow chart, but <laughs> this one's super powerful. Um, so from my perspective, the Anthropocene is too often framed as a simple state of nature, a symptom of progress, a geologic era that has been passively inscribed in stone. The Anthropocene is the result of exploitation of living systems for the creation of wealth and ease. I am committed to see how our time is the product of white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, extractivism, and American exceptionalism. There is no way and no need to simplify this matter. 
Our way of life is rooted in the oppression and erasure of people and systems that do not serve dominant profit-oriented society. If you want to take a screenshot of the flow chart, I totally recommend it. It's kind of been blowing my mind. Um, so in recent months since quarantine began, especially, I have become increasingly interested in the fraying of power. This moment in time, this very insecure moment, seems to be a time of fissures and ruptures and breaks. But as we are facing social, ecological, and political upheaval, I am determined to focus on what emerges. I found this strap deep in a forest. It is very mysterious and intriguing. It is the most exhausted thing I have ever held in my hands. This strap has held great weight. It has been trusted. My meticulous drawing process allows me to seek out the faith that a person wants invested in this strap. Looking at these forms, I contemplate something that might appear obsolete, used up, of no use. Making these drawings of the strap in this frayed form allows me to understand the strength it once had. What happens when the things we trust fail and when the things we depend on break? They continue to hold an aura of that relationship. This strap is a document of everything it ever did. Although the opposite of broken is whole, you cannot unbreak something. These drawings ask what comes after the breaking point. In exploring this thing that is done doing what it was meant to do, I feel gratitude. I want to dignify what remains. So what remains? What stays intact? What needs to be preserved? These questions inspire me. Last autumn of the education team at Site Santa Fe, a museum in New Mexico, we asked nearly 500 school children what they thought needed to be protected. We compiled thousands of words, and in rewriting them, I created this mural in the education wing of the museum. The answers are poignant, funny, and profound. The repetition of certain words shows what the kids are most deeply concerned about. Immigrant children, my mom, rivers, clean air, me from getting shot, polar bears, trees. As I talked to the kids during this process, it was clear that they see their own futures as bound with everything on the list. The instability of the environment and the social injustices of our time makes them insecure and forces them to be aware of a larger interconnectedness. In this density and scale, this mural also asks of audiences what are you protecting for these kids? What do we need to do now to express our care for their future? So I'm really excited to have several opportunities to create more crowdsourced murals. Um, next month, I will be thinking through permanence and change with two murals in Boulder, Colorado. And I'm also gonna be creating some murals with the Anchorage Museum next spring around the questions of shelter and refuge. So thinking about change and permanence has motivated me to find ways to demystify. Oh, I don't want to show the video. Oh, well. Um, to demystify and dignify change. I had terrible growing pains growing up, but now I have nothing but gratitude for my able adult legs. Climate devastation is terrifying, but is beginning to create much needed behavioral changes in what we consume and how we understand our impacts. 
Black, Indigenous, and people of color have been fighting racial injustice, and the whole world is finally starting to join in that struggle. But to be in denial of change is not only unnatural, it does not allow for a more holistic future to emerge. When we start to implicate ourselves in the change, we go through growing pains and then also learn to be nimble. I have often stated that it will not be the same, but it might be beautiful, which has become the title for my newest and ongoing work. This summer, with the support of the National Performance Network and the Speranza Foundation, I'm creating a multimedia project that will address change and impermanence, looking to breakage and emergence, human legacy and geologic time. I've been working with Mike Conti, one of our favorite amazing Alaskan cinematographers and my co-conspirator. These are puzzle stones, rocks that have been shattered by extreme temperature shifts. Here in McCarthy, they've been recently ejected by a glacier. They are enigmatic and alluring, fragile and strong. I am inspired to make this work because we can witness these rocks in the midst of transformation. This time of rapid change asks us to be involved and responsive as it happens. We cannot wait to see how the world remakes itself. I'm finding it increasingly important to explore how we care for something, even as it crumbles. I started this work because I often feel that the world is in pieces, and I have no sure way to reassemble it. But this state of insecurity and crumbling does not make me stop seeking what might come next. Because I know this planet is forever impacted by my actions does not mean I can abandon it. To acknowledge our roles in systemic oppression and justice does not mean we have fixed the problem. I wanted to see what would happen if I asked people to carefully and self-consciously pick up these rocks that are very unstable. How do we engage with change and take an active role in change, even if that is very uncomfortable and causes instability? I keep asking, how do we act in ways that assert that even though the future will not be the same, it might be beautiful? So that's what I'm thinking about. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nina. I'd love to talk about <clears throat> bringing It Might Be Beautiful to Benel. That sounds really exciting. It's a beautiful presentation. And I know that you're gonna jump off quickly at noon, so we've been quite um, you know, pleased to see your work first and help us get really deeper. Right, well, and something I just wanted to say too is like how I just presented these kind of curated formal talks is a big part of how I share my work. So I think presenting research and presenting how I am in the world, it's been a huge challenge for me as an artist to mm -hmm. know how I use photography and backpacking and my engagement in diverse communities so it's a pleasure to find these new formats to share and it's really special yeah thank you so much and so um stick with us as long as you can and feel free to jump in and ask questions of cheryl who will be who will be um giving us a little presentation here as well i just want to um shift into that if we might, Cheryl. Um, and if you would like to do so with any you know, remarks or comments about Nina's work, please feel free to do that. Well, I'm always amazed by the creative zeitgeist. 
um, you know, how much overlap there is. And I think that that's the remarkable thing about um, artists in a way in that, you know, they have this capacity to um, a sort of prescience, to see things um, ahead of time. And then to come at it from all different angles, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and so that, you know, um, there's multiple ways of communicating, you know, and hopefully, um, you know, you, you strike some chord somewhere with someone. Um, so, you know, it, it's really interesting to see um, Nina's work just, just flat out interesting and fascinating and to, you know, hear her thoughts behind it. Um, and it's such beautiful work, Nina. You know, the detail in your drawings is just exquisite. Yeah. Thank you, Cheryl. You're welcome. So, Cheryl, you've been, you know, in, for as long as I've known you, which is getting on to, I don't know, I want to say close to 20 years, you've been um, involved in an annual migration from Alaska to Mexico. It's an interesting kind of an, among the many parallels that you and Nina share. <laughs> <laughs> that um, we've never really talked about before. Um, you know, you've been going back and forth between Alaska and Mexico and looking at some really um, deep ecological issues. And, um, and so I just wanted to I- invite you to um, share with us some images of your work as, as you maybe explore that theme and, and some others about this. Um. Sure. Um. I, I think as an immigrant, um, I feel somewhat like a citizen of the world. And what I find when I travel are these universal truths, um, that things that are happening in this community are also happening in that community. Um, and so um, I've been able to draw those parallels uh, through this sort of long time connection between Mexico and Alaska and traveling between the two. Um, would you like me to begin my presentation? Yeah. And as okay. you make that transition, I'm just going to um, ask, because um, it takes always a second to switch to screen share. Sure. Scott McDonald asked mm-hmm. a wonderful question of you both. What's the difference between art making and activism? Is the impulse art or activism? These are issues I'm struggling with as an artist. And as I'm... That's I, such I a think good... it's a... Yeah. <laughs> You know, I had someone review a grant one time and her comment was, well, are you an artist or an activist? And, and she herself is, a, you know, a well-known artist. And um, I think the line is blurred. You know, there's as many different answers for that as there are artists. Um, and I don't think, you know, I, I'm a little disturbed that artists are... Um, that really a lot of the funding source these days from um, the corporate art world is is based is issues based and that does that does bother me a little bit um you know just because i you know use art to advocate um i don't think that that other artists should necessarily um have to fit into that box in order to um, be sustained Right. Part of how Cheryl and I met almost 10 years ago was um, through the Santa Fe Art Institute. And I was the programs director there then. And 
really endeavored to change that historic program from um, kind of just straight art programming more towards a hybrid form of justice programming. And um, it was so illuminating because we had to have this conversation all the time about the difference between art and activism. And to the artists themselves who are making in that vein, it's like they don't need to separate it out. It's not like you would say to a painter, like, well, are you painting about color or are you painting about form? No one like forces a painter to ask that. And so to, to artists that are inspired by, um, by justice seeking activities, it's, it's the same as a painter who's wanting to respond, respond through both color and form. Like I want to respond through, um, you know, performative research and through my charcoal drawings and, and they both can spark different concerns in people. So um, I do think that there is an issue like what Cheryl said about this kind of, uh, that art has to answer all of its questions all at the same time right now. I'm deeply concerned about that, that um, like there still is so much space for beauty and spectacle, but some of the biggest spectacles in the world right now are injustice. So we need to create huge spectacular work to face injustice. Like that's kind of how I'm approaching it. Capitalism is so gigantic. How do we create fantastically anti-capitalist experiences just for our senses? You know, that's kind of what I'm interested in at the moment. Thank you. Well, I think we should, um Gosh, it's, it's so it's a great discussion. But I think we should shift to Cheryl's images if we if we could, Cheryl, um, just sure. so we have enough time to do that. Especially since um, we'll end right at noon. Mm -hmm. So we're going to look at some some images on screen share. Oh, I guess I need to turn screen share on. All right, there we go. Let's see. Okay. Okay, so um, my approach here is just to sort of go chronologically because that sort of tracks my path to where I am now. Um, and I guess if I backtrack to 2009, this piece that's called the Harvest Rosary was created in response to the 20th anniversary of the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And um, I guess what I would say is, you know, Alaskans are no stranger to catastrophic environmental disasters. Um, you know, I, I think we get it. Um, but this, uh, this piece was, it sort of came at the end of a body of work that really dealt with um, the consequences of uh, oil extraction and the global petroleum culture that it created and, and dependency. Um, and what I did was I created large installation works that mostly were derived from petroleum-based products like plastics or, or wax. Um, so at the end of this body of work, you know, dealing with oil, I, I suddenly had this light bulb moment where I was like, but I need to go to the source, you know. I need to go find the spaces where this is extracted and really wanted to go to Anwar um, and the Arctic Coastal Plain and, and witness what was going on there. So I started applying to um, 
wilderness-based artist residencies and in um, 2014 received one with the Gates of the Arctic. Uh, let me see. I'm going to shift here. Yeah, there we are. Um, with the Gates of the Arctic uh, Park and Preserve and spent some time there. Um, which is south of the Brooks Range and it's not an area where oil is extracted. Um, so, um, but anyway, while I was there, I um, ran into the wildlife refuge manager for the Canudi Wildlife Refuge and he invited me to um, fly over the area um, and, and just sort of get that perspective. Um, so, what I learned, I mean, this man is a very compassionate man, very knowledgeable about things that are going on in the region. And he was able to show me, um, you know, what an, the, the global importance of the environment, um, its importance as a uh, migratory um, foul migration path, um, that it houses one of the world's largest chum salmon runs. Um, that it's the home of the porcupine caribou herd, um, and also indigenous people for, I think, about 10,000 years uh, have lived on this land. And to see this from an aerial perspective and um, talk to him, um, you know, who is very politically aware of what is going on in the area was really interesting. Um, I'm just going to skip quickly here to just kind of show um, one piece of work that came out of this experience. Um, it's called the Caribou Abundance Blanket. And, but at that point, I was still really working with um, these plastic materials. Um, so that, that's just a little bit of an aside to inform what I'm going to share with you later. While I was here in this area, um, there was a very controversial thing happening. It was called the uh, Road to Ambler, which uh, was a proposed road to support a copper mine. And the proposal was that it would um, uh, reach from the Dalton Highway to within about 20 miles of the West Coast um, near Kotzebue, and approximately 220 miles long. Um, and completely bisecting this uh, area of wilderness that we had just flown over. Um, and it, it was very controversial because there were people that stood to gain and people that stood to uh, lose if this road went through. And um, I mentioned this because it's, it's part of a pattern that I began to observe um, in terms of development. So as I was about to leave Battles, I was sitting waiting for the plane to come in and there was a stack of pamphlets, um, this sort of propaganda. And um, I was just sort of casually looking at the imagery and looking at this sort of beautiful, um, fantastic mythological um, view of the wilderness and uh, put out by the company that was going to build the road. And noticed that there was the road was missing you know so it was it was ironic to me to see that um that this uh imagery was being co-opted to promote something that was going to contribute to its demise um and so i left them a little present before i left i pulled out my marker and i 
uh, did a little landscaping and engineering on their pamphlets. Um, so uh, on my return to my own community, um, there was a similar uh, kind of disruption in the landscape uh, um, happening. There's a series, um, a network of these trails, historic trails that go through um, the community where I live. And they're a really valuable community asset. They give people access to hunting, to blueberry um, picking, to recreation, um, a variety of social networks, you know, connecting with your neighbor. And also they link into a much greater um, uh, network of, of other trails. And so access was being um, closed off to the community here. And so this was an, an intervention uh, performance piece that um, I collaborated with my neighbors to produce to just sort of demonstrate this idea that we are inextricably linked to the land. And the shields um, both reflect uh, and absorb and integrate the human body with the landscape, um, but also um, represent you know, a need to protect it. So, um, so that's that piece. Um, and then as Asia mentioned, um, I have these longstanding connections to a small town in Mexico, in Baja, California, sir. And things were happening there too. And uh, I mean, 2014 was a pretty busy year um, in terms of um, events that really shaped um, my way of thinking about my art. So I got involved with a group of uh, fishermen, um, not just me, but many, many people. Um, and the interesting thing is these fishermen were fighting um, a mega development in the area that was um, potentially, well, first of all, they were being done, denied access. And, um, you know, it was difficult for them to uh, get to their launch areas. And this uh, beach is particularly important because there are not a, a lot of launch areas um, on that Pacific coastline that's pretty dangerous to launch from. So um, this, this mega development threatened not only their access and their patrimony and their lifestyle and livelihood, it um, was going to destroy a very beautiful landscape and um, habitat for migrating um, sea life, mangroves, um, potentially the uh, saline plant that they were proposing uh, would contaminate you know the the area where the fishermen fished um, so there there were a lot of um, reasons for the fishermen to be upset but the interesting thing um, is that they also were able to see the bigger picture and that was that the water uh, rights were going to be impacted the potable water the, the fresh water that supplied the town so what happened here is what what I noticed happening in my own um, town of Esther and then um, out in the um, gates of the Arctic area, that some outside force um, with a lot of power was coming in and threatened to um, dis dismantle 
the landscape and disrupt um, the way of life. And there was this pattern of dividing communities so that some members benefited and, you know, and, and others did not. And so while people are, you know, in this friction with one another, then the, the, the machine, the big machine just keeps rolling. Um, so, uh, you know, my, my role as an artist um, in this community, I was, I was really upset and didn't quite know how to deal with it. So I started off just simply by documenting the area, um, creating a record, documenting the people. Um, and it, as um, Nina mentioned, as, as a means of bearing witness, actually, I felt very powerless. I didn't think that there was any way to stop this, um, this company. And um, so, as I say, I started documenting the area. Um, then I got involved in um, collaborating um, and creating interventions. And uh, finally, um, or not finally, but you know, when, when as an artist, I, I was looking for ways that I could help, I just, I just offered my skill set. And so um, people were able to use my images uh, for social media campaigns. Um, so what this led to um, was further documenting changes that I've seen over time also in Alaska and uh, the beginning of a series of work um, called the Disappearing Landscape series. And here we have, um, you know, two images that are really within the same ecosystem, um, but one part of the ecosystem is being developed and the other hasn't. And so these developed areas I've come to kind of term um, these new topographics as dystopics because there's just something very odd about um, the way humans have placed themselves in these environments. And what I noticed too is that as the landscape disappears and whatever the resource is, the um, colonizing agent has come in to extract, whether it's uh, natural resources, or timber or um, sunshine and beaches, just whatever it is that as the landscape appears, it's replaced by these um, large built spaces. Um, in that the resource then becomes uh, human beings. That's the next thing to be um, mined in a sense. Um, so, I had the opportunity when I attended the Santa Fe Art Institute to look at this area, um, this, this concept of human uh, or, or energy flows uh, that sustained, you know, economies um, through human capital and the exploitation of it, and to sort of look at the contrasting um, environments. Um, this idea of a rich natural organic environment um, and, uh, from which human beings were originally connected to this ultimate point of disconnection um, and really a, a loss of humanity almost, a dehumanizing environment. Um, so in this series, it's called the Gray Slavery Series, um, I explore that. That's a little on hold at the moment, but um, 
it just sort of shows how uh, we the environmental replacement that this um, this built space is, is now the place where you know this is come together that this is where we find our, our food you know our our shelter um, all our basic needs are now met and it's so dissociated from um, the natural landscape. Um, I've also been working on a series called Carbon Bomb, and that's really my way of explaining the Anthropocene is this just slow bombing of the earth uh, with the extraction and then uh, spewing out of carbon onto the surface. And um, clearly the link between uh, this toxicity and consumerism so that, you know, as human beings, we're both being exploited um, for our labor, but also mined for the, the little wealth that we are able to extract. Um, and again, another pattern I see is, is these um, companies coming in, extracting the wealth and really not contributing anything uh, to the community more than they minimally have to in order to sustain their own um, greed, I guess. So all of this has kind of led me to my current project, the rewilding project. And rewilding, um, I, I guess the project could have just as easily been called reconnecting, but rewilding frames it in terms of what it is that we're reconnecting to. And basically it was a term that uh, sort of evolved, I think, in the 90s as a, a part of an environmentalist movement, but then was adopted by um, ecologists uh, for biological management. And what it basically does is it, um, the idea is to preserve and restore wilderness spaces, um, you know, through a series of um, well, basically taking uh, steps that don't involve mankind and not for the, the benefit of mankind. Um, it's restoring uh, the environment so that the apex predators can return. It's creating uh, pathways, allowing natural ecological events to happen, such as spire. Um, anyway, it's this, this, this whole concept. And it was seen, I think, in the 90s as part of the way to counteract um, the damage that, that had been done to the environment. Um, it was sort of seen as a solution. Um, it, it's interesting. So what happened was in, in, after I did the residency in Santa Fe, all of these sort of bits and pieces kind of came together in this idea of rewilding. And I, would, I, I got this clear vision of what the underlying problem was, what needed to happen. Um, and so, I started applying for grants and, and residencies. I uh, gave notice to my job. And um, my plan was that in 2018, I was gonna go out into these wilderness spaces and really dig deep. But what actually happened was, um, as these rejection letters came back, um, it was pretty clear that I wasn't gonna get any money and I wasn't gonna get any uh, artist residencies that year and um, I had lost my job. So um, I was pretty devastated and was, you know, 
discussing this with my husband and he said, well, can't you create your own residency? And I was like, no, <laughs> there's no way I can get access. You know, I have the resources um, that's provided through an artist residency. Um, but we started brainstorming and his business is, um, he's a trails project manager. And so we came up with this idea that, you know, we could create this mobile lab for me. And uh, so this is what it is. It's a rewilding lab. And in 2018, I set off um, on a journey to uh, collect content, talk to people. But there was a real shift here. I'd gone from looking at really remote areas of wilderness to out of necessity because I was on a road system looking at these fringe areas where human activity overlaps the landscape. Um, and just sort of exploring that. My goal and my idea is to uh, use projection as a means to create uh, installations and interventions. And I'm looking at both projecting onto these built surfaces like the igloo that you see here, um, but also onto natural features. Um, and so this is just a mock-up uh, conceptually of the, the sort of thing that I would like to do. And um, this represents uh, perhaps having a live feed at a gas station and projecting that onto a glacier, um, just drawing a very blatant connection um, between human activity and its effect on the environment. Um, so that's basically where I'm at at the moment. It's, it's a long-term endeavor. Um, it requires a lot of um, learning on my part and uh, a lot of technological um, know-how and uh, obtaining equipment. And then just logistically, it's incredibly difficult. But um, it's the goal I set myself. And, you know, my last big body of work took 10 years. I completely expect this to take the same amount of time um that's it thank you cheryl another like outstanding presentation and such a um ambitious and um multimedia endeavor that you're engaged in also across great physical distances and spaces it's really fascinating let's um unshare our screen if you would yes okay there we go thank you and i just want to um in, invite anybody who might have questions of these artists to um speak up um nina has to depart at 12 she's probably already jumped out but if um no, anybody I'm else i'm gonna stay for a little while i'd prefer oh, great. to oh there you are wonderful well if you've got any questions or, or comments that you'd like to share um, in response to Cheryl's remarkable presentation and body of work please please do Nina or anyone else go ahead <laughs> Nina what are you thinking I was just I, I think that this idea of dependency um, I guess I'm just looking at Cheryl with the big truck and the camper and like how hard it is to to access 
the places that we're making work here adds this whole other layer when we're in these remote places. But there's some balance in that sometimes. Um, there's also kind of some ethical questions to that. And so I was just, I'm just having, it's not a question, it's just this thought of like this very specific Alaskan um, relationship to mobility um, that's just so different. Um, Mm -hmm. I appreciate what you were saying towards the end, especially Cheryl, about the challenges of technology and mobility um, and that shifting your focus to not just remote places, but these kind of interstitial places between communities and wildness is just, just as important and you'll find great work there too. Absolutely, thank you for that, for that comment. Anybody else have a question or an observation they'd like to share with these two fantastic artist activists before we conclude this week? I'm sort of left um, awestruck and dumbstruck myself. <laughs> I feel that same way, Asia's awestruck and dumbstruck. I... Yeah. Processing and absorbing. It was incredible. Both Nina and Cheryl, thank you. Wow. Yes, thank you so much. And for drawing people from across, um, you know, this continent, um, you have, uh, you've got great audiences and it's so important in this project, um, this dialogue to sustain and deepen our connections. So I just want to thank all of you for, for tuning in and, and that if you want to tell others about it, they can catch this dialogue on Facebook Live where it lives on Benel Street Art Center's um, page, as well as our website. Mm. Next week, we'll be speaking with Skywalker Payne. She's um, a local um, black um, woman who has pioneered a new project to heal um, racism around storytelling. And Benel's board and staff engaged in a wonderful workshop with her a couple weeks ago and we'll be talking about what that experience was like. Thanks again for tuning in to inspiration and adaptation. Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you so, Asia. so much everybody. It was <laughs> Thank great. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Wonderful. Wow. <laughs>